Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode, Lizzie Borden, Fact or Legend? Books, documentaries, plays, and websites on Lizzie Borden are plentiful, some more based on legend than fact. An expert who prides herself on being in the fact-based category is Dr. Stephanie Corey, librarian, educator, and theater professional. A native Floridian, she became involved in all matters relating to Fall River history through her interest in the Lizzie Borden murder case of 1892. She is the publisher and editor of The Hatchet, a journal of Lizzie Borden and Victorian studies in its eighth year of publication. She is also the curator of the Lizzie Borden Virtual Museum and Library, which can be found on the website lizzieandrewborden.com. That's lizzieandrewborden.com. I recently sat down with Dr. Corey for a fascinating freewheeling conversation. Join us as we try to separate fact from legend. How are you doing, Stephanie? Really good. It's a nice warm day. Uh, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your your background and your um, sort of coming to interest of uh, of the legend of Lizzie Borden. It's an odd story, but probably something about it will ring true to other people. I'm from Florida, so yeah, here I live in Massachusetts now, but it was my father's fault. He decided one day that he would read a book by Robert Sullivan called Goodbye, Lizzie Borden. And he sat at the dinner table and said, what do you guys think about this case? And we all looked at him like, what, who, who's Lizzie Borden? What's that all about? And he said, well, we need to be able to have a talk about this. So he passed the book around, and we were forced to read it. But, of course, we gladly read it. And after we had all read the book, we were able to sit around the dinner table and talk murder because we all came from the same place. And ever since then, I kind of was hooked and hooked so much that uh, eventually I fell in love with somebody who was a Fall River guy and moved to Fall River and lived in the house next door to Maplecroft for 10, 12 years. And in fact, the house I lived in was owned by Lizzie before she died. She had purchased it the year before she died to put her um, house, her uh, keep uh, her workers there, her house workers mm. and her uh, house people. Um, but it never happened because the house wasn't renovated in time and then she died. So. In fact, when we moved, he moved in, there was a runner going up the stairs with a tag on it that said, Return to LB. <laughs> Return to LB. Well, they're going to have to go over to, what is it, the Oak Grove Cemetery? Yeah, yeah, got to go there to see her now. Um, so you're, you're more than just a, a Lizzieophile, if you will. You've, you have a, a website, yes. um, which has, uh, it, it's got a wealth of information on it. Um, that comes from that same thing I was mentioning, which is getting us all on the same page. So myself and Harry Widows, the late Harry Widows, and my sister put together the trial transcript in 
digital format for the first time ever so that you can download it and you can read it yourself. So it used to, you have to go through the Superior Court of Massachusetts to get a copy and it cost $50 and it came out in microfilm only. So we transcribed that 1900 page trial. We transcribed the witness statements. We transcribed the preliminary hearing. We transcribed um, the trial itself, all of these primary source documents and gave them away so that everybody could be on the same page. Because it, in the beginning, the Lizzie community was kind of a closed system. If you couldn't afford the resources, you couldn't get the information. This was before the internet was very big, before cell phones usage, before digitization of documents. So my father taught me that. If we're all in the same place when we start talking about something, then we are all as equally educated about the topic, and we can have an intelligent conversation. So the, so the stuff that I may see in, in someone's book, uh, that it, is it a, a good chance they're using this as source stuff, or have they then themselves gone back and, and gotten and transcribed for themselves the official Sometimes they go themselves, but that's still only available on microfilm. So my book, it's, it's, a, on, lot easier. it's a lot easier <laughs> to get your hands on. Yeah. Right. And it's free to download from the website, lizzieandreporten.com. So you can get your hands on a copy. So if that was quickly passed, passed by, it's lizzieandreporten.com. Her middle name, yeah. There you go. Yes. Well, there's so much Lizzie Borden this and Lizzie Borden that. <laughs> if you Google search, you end up all over the place. Um, so again, I, as I said at the beginning, this is going to be freewheeling. I, I jump around. So you want to take me back onto a track or something that is certainly uh, good to do. Um, but one of my feelings, again, because I, I do, most of the books will say this, they call it the legend of Lizzie Borden. It is a legend. Um, I don't know if you could c compare it to the legend of Davy Crockett. I mean, Davy Crockett was a real person. He did really think he did really things. And then, you know, myth grows around him, etc. Um, so this is over 100 years ago. And as you point out, there was no internet then. Uh, there, uh, there were newspaper, great newspaper articles. I've started, I've just started to dive into those. Again, a lot of them bound in books, other, you know, other sources to actually see uh, the newspaper with its uh, banner headline, etc. Um, but so obviously, even through what I find interesting is even with the court documents. Uh, witness statements, statements from the police, um, you know, as in any trial, you know, it's it's uh, your memory of it. Uh, but people will still take that and say, well, no, that's not true. Or they'll take a, a section of what a witness said, and, ah, don't you see that means X. Um, how have you parsed through the stuff that you have found and even the first source material? Um, and and how do you how do we come to a, a say on the same page almost of things that we can almost say for certain happened and then I mean there was one I found that someone claimed shit the reason the murders happened is Lizzie was pregnant <laughs> and 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 her father was going to do something if, you know and that got dispelled the moment it happened but someone probably can, has have seen that and has put it in a book this really happened well people put their modern understanding of social and family dynamic and how much we know about the way people behave nowadays onto something that happened back then. And that's really not fair because social mores and social habits and social uh, uh, 
the way people behaved was quite different than the way people behave today. So certain things would never happen that people voiced on the past. And so they, people come up with these kind of strange modern theories, I call them, for what could be just a crime to, you know, people kill for money all the time. It doesn't have to be as insidious as incest. It doesn't have to be as insidious as, well, insidious in its day of lesbianism, not that it is today, but it's this wild interpretation, like it's got to be some reason. Part of it is the demonization of the victims, which drives me crazy. Nobody deserves to die the way Andrew and Abby Borden died with 19 blows to the head in, in the case of Abby and 11 in the case of Andrew. Nobody deserves to die that way. So to then try to say, well, he was a bad man and that is okay because we really like Lizzie and she was acquitted and the justice system must be right. So even if she did do it, there must be a reason why she did it. That's a really darn good reason. And I'm like, no, wait a minute. You know, I can disprove to you this whole miserly, skin flint, greedy, money-grubbing Andrew. I can tell you all the generous things he did in his life that are not written about. Because when people write a book about Lizzie Borden, they start out with a bias. They already know how they want the book to end, and then they only put the stuff in the book that proves their theory. So they leave out the extraneous truth of the situation. And when you do that, then you're missing the overall, which is there is could be alternate theories within your theory of what happened. And we will never know. It's an unsolved, unsolvable case, and we will never know the answer. And that's what's kind of cool about it, because anybody can come up with a theory. And as long as it sort of makes logical sense and goes with the facts, all the more power to you. Write a book about it. But you'll never convince people 100% that that's the truth because it's an unsolvable case. It was before crime scene investigation techniques. It's before, I mean, the police were a constabulary. They weren't detectives. They didn't have crime scene protocols. There were newspaper reporters and no fewer than seven doctors walking around that house. There were police in and out. There were neighbors in and out. Um, there was contamination. There was no fingerprinting even in the United States at that point. They could type blood as whether it was human or animal, but they couldn't tell you if it was had a, had a person connected to it. And even that idea of typing blood for animal and human was suspect. And yet they came up with time of death. And in fact, the techniques that they used to determine the time of death of these two people are still the techniques that are used today to determine time of death. So there was something advanced about that part of the murder investigation that still stays with us, that's important. But the photographs that you see of the dead bodies, those are not crime scene photos. Those were taken at 3.30 in the afternoon. These murders happened in the morning. This was a recreation of the location and the placement of the bodies as they were remembered being in that place by the people who found them. They were turned over, moved, sat up, investigated, doctors, you know, put their fingers in them and then put them back. And yeah, I think this is the way it was. So. You can't even call them crime scene photos like we think of a crime scene photo today. So there's 
blood spatter analysis. Nobody's ever looked at that. And yet there's detailed analysis at the trial of where the blood spatter was in the rooms. But nobody's really investigated that as a kind of idea as to where the assailant stood. So we have theory after theory after theory after theory, and the case goes on, and it's interesting, and go ahead and convince me. Please convince well, let, me. Let's start. Let's, a good way to do it is let's, if we can, you and I will sit here and we will come up with if there's anything that can be said, yes, this happened. I think we can agree Andrew and, and Abby Borden were, were killed. killed. Yes. Okay. We can say it was suicide. We can say they fell down the stairs and fell on a hatchet. But we can say they were both killed. On August 4th, 1892. Good. Good. Okay. Check that one off. Yes, okay. exactly. In Fall River, Massachusetts. In Fall River, Massachusetts. At 92 2nd Street. He downstairs and she upstairs. We can also, based on what you'd mentioned before, uh, time of death and even uh, uh, other eyewitnesses in the sense of uh, Bridget, uh, you know, uh, seeing uh, where's uh, Mrs. Board and so forth, that, that one happened, we're pretty sure one, Abby happened first. Yes. And Andrew happened second. So Which we has could... to do with stomach contents. That was the proved part, but... Um, the interaction again of of Andrew coming home. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he was alive at a certain time. Bridget could say it was about ten thirty. Yeah, but if Bridget's involved, then her oh, testimony okay. is all suspect. All right. All right. So we only have two people's words for what happened uh, but, that yes, morning that are still exactly. alive. Well, John Morse leaves in the yep. morning and goes off to Waybossa Street. He doesn't come back till yep. later. So we have Bridget and Lizzie, and it's what they say happened. Is, is what we, we think it's, happened. Right. If we think Lizzie did it, then you can't believe anything she says. Right. But if you think Bridget's involved, you can't believe what she says either. So we don't know. We don't really know what was said and what was done and where people were because you can't really trust these two people to be the, the holders of the truth at the moment. So the first person who can actually testify outside of them is Adelaide Churchill. Just that she came in. But right, but I'm saying that's when a clock starts on another witness. Yes. When she arrives having been an called outsider, in. An outsider, right. An outsider, thank you. An outsider gets called in by Lizzie and she, whether, I mean. I'm, She's just hanging out. She's I just mean, hanging out and she, you know, I mean. What I happened, she, what happened and Lizzie tells her what happened. Right, and whether but she has a Lizzie's clock story, and knows. it's Lizzie's story, right. It's Lizzie's story, right. but she comes in, sees as, as shown Andrew, and shortly thereafter... Oh, she doesn't want to see him. She doesn't... I'm sorry. She, she doesn't, doesn't want to see Andrew. She but, doesn't want to see him like that. But she, she goes looking for, uh, uh, on Lizzie's request, oh, going upstairs to she, look for Well, Abby. she says like, she heard her come in, right, so, so would you and go up, and, go up and she's like, I don't want to go by myself, and Bridget goes, goes with, with her, her, and they go up the front stairs. Right. And they see to the infamous seventh step, which I have been to. It's, <laughs> it's very cool. They find Abby, and she's dead too. Yeah, and there you go. There you go. And the rest uh, is history. The rest. Okay, we can go now. That's it. No, that's it. That's all we have. <laughs> and so, we don't know who did it. Okay, so I am going to play. If you can play the if card, how I usually go with this, going in both directions, it, it's easier just to discuss things and even to spell them by saying she did it, and this is why I think she did it, and then you can say, well, that didn't really. You know, really happen. Some of the things, aside from it, it's a good story that she did it, um, is the biggest thing. And and I know that's been some people have have dispelled it, but a couple of the doctors and position of the body, even if it was moved, it wasn't thrown across the room. No, no. 
So my, not theory, but my belief in what is in a court transcript, and someone say, well, you know, it's, it's a doctor's opinion. Okay. What else have I got, for God's sakes? If you're just going to throw, then there's no trial, there's no right, right. board. They really didn't die. Right. You know, and we can all go home. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, you got to cut a little slack of, okay, I'm going to at least go to the transcript. Oh, no, that's what. Let's go to the videotape. <laughs> the videotape on this one from a doctor is that the first blow to Abby was as she faced. Yes, her assailant. You're going to accept that as well? Well, yes, because the wound is a flap wound of her ear, and it's facing okay. from the front of the face, okay. and the ear is flapped back. So okay. the first blow was to her face, the okay. side of her face. Now, here we go. Now, I'm going to put those pieces together, which I'm not even sure were. I mean, I think they're put together the trial, but certainly by people who are saying that it had to be someone she knew. Why? Uh, you know, this is my why? No, and you'll <laughs> okay. say why not. Okay. All right. There has been discussion, of course, that the body is not in its original position. Okay, it was sat up and, and all that. They moved the bed out of the room to take some pictures and so so forth. I don't – oh, well, let me ask first. Do you buy that she was killed in that general location? Oh, yeah, That yeah, far no. into the room? Oh, yes, Okay, sure. people are saying no. That no, you, then she turned we, around and was whacked from behind from and behind, the person okay. stood astride her okay. and took her out. Yes. Okay, good, because I, I still got people – right. I still got people saying that uh, it could be that she was startled at the door by a stranger and ran into the room and then got killed. I, I did that. Just doesn't the the, the physical evidence What's does. What's the point of? Well, because then it can be a stranger. If she... it could still be a stranger, oh. if she's down on the ground or she's but she's, she's up. Pop, no, she's bending over and fixing the bed and then spread, th and, then and she turns around turns. and there's okay. a person. So okay. it could still be startled. Still could be startled. Okay. All right. See, I it was, doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be someone, someone talking to her and no. pulling the hatchet out. No. All right. See, there's characters in the story that are creepy and unusual, and there's something wrong with them. Like Uncle Morse, there's something wrong with Uncle Morse. And it's not just his crazy eyes, because his sister, Sarah, Lizzie's mother, had those same crazy eyes. And I think that's just the photography of the day. I think it's their eyes were a certain color that didn't translate well into photography, and so they kind of look demented. But they're not because um, there was no insanity in the family because the prosecution investigated that thoroughly. They needed to find out if the defense was going to put forth an insanity de defense. So they investigated and interviewed everybody and they couldn't find any documented or opinioned insanity in the family. So put that aside. There's something weird about John Morse. He lies repeatedly in his trial testimony. And I find that if someone's going to lie repeatedly in their trial testimony, they're either – and he's never caught on it. They never stop him and say, well, wait a minute. Somebody else said the exact opposite. They let him get away with it. And that's the most frustrating thing about this entire case. From the inquest on, they never ask the right questions. They never ask the follow-up question. They never ask the question I want asked. They just ask the question, they wait for the answer, and then they move on to the next question. It's not like you think, and now we have hindsight. So we'd say, you need, should have asked her this and this and this and this and this, but they never did. So we only have what they have. But John Morse's testimony is so here and there and back again, and he has an alibi, and he wasn't there. So why would he lie? And what's the point of that? And I don't understand that. I don't understand how nobody catches him in any of these misstatements. Is his memory that bad? Is he trying to cover for something? 
And so this always puts this question in my head. So my focus is always on him for some reason because of his inadequate answering at the trial and then the preliminary. But then you look at Lizzie and you're like, who else could have done it, right? Who else could have done it? She either did it or she knows who did it because she's really the only person who is a part of the family that would know if somebody was in the house or about the house or hiding someone in the house or helping someone in this endeavor. But conspiracies, I'm not into those. So, and somebody would have talked. So you don't think Emma paid someone? Uh, well, she, she was clearly not there, but she didn't pay. So, There's I, no money that, <laughs> uh, but if we could only do forensic analysis right. of people's bank accounts, right? right? right. Like they do now. Um, we it just, it's, it's a it's a it's a locked door mystery. Yes. And because it's a locked door mystery and we only have what we have, we won't have any more than that. No. Then it doesn't matter what you think because your opinion is just as okay as mine as long as it goes with the facts and I don't know and I know I'll never know. I feel like when my friends who are Lizzie people pass on, <laughs> first thought is now they'll know if she did it or not. That's the weirdest thought you could have. But it comes to mind because it's like the Akashic records are going to contain whether Lizzie was guilty or not. Well, and let me flip a little bit. Let me come to the other side. Some of the things that, that make me say uh, I'm with the people, probably the 12, uh, 12, 13 jurors, 12. 12. 12. 12 angry men. I don't know if they were angry, but they were men. White men. White men. White Farmers old men with and, daughters and yes. wives. Okay. And mother-in-laws. But anyway, um, that after she did this, quote, unquote, after she did this, mm -hmm. she lived a life. Yeah. Never Talk about never harmed a cat. Gave money to humane societies. Uh -huh. Was was a upstanding person in the community before. Uh-huh was an upstanding com person in the community afterwards except being shunned uh, from some people she because she, she put, lived... She know. put her chauffeur's son through medical school. She endowed things. She gave gifts of financial reward to people. When she died, she gave her personal belongings, her loved personal possessions to people who worked for her, who kept, who were loyal to her. She rewarded people. She had, she didn't die feeling guilty. She died peacefully, as far as we know. Um, she would visit the grave of her father and stepmother periodically. There's recorded information about that that's in Parallel Lives uh, from the Fall River Historical Society. So she had a life. She traveled afterwards, but she never left Fall River. She didn't move away. And she could have moved to Paris and been one of those cause celebs like, I don't know, Josephine Baker, who was dealing with racism in the United States and went to France and didn't have any of that. She could have been a celebrity abroad. She could have been somebody else. She could have started over in San Francisco, but she didn't. She stayed in Fall River and she stayed there till the day she died. And I don't know why, because Fall River wasn't having much of her. No, and, and it's just, again, the... the, the... And they still don't. <laughs> The, the the it's hard to wrap your first of all it's hard to wrap your your as a a um I'd like to think normal human being not that she was abnormal <laughs> I can't even fathom killing someone I I I have never I can't even think the worst got into a rough and tumble with my brother when I was young I never struck anyone road rage angry yes absolutely right. screaming in a car never at a person 
And so, A, I don't care if they're strangers or, again, if they've slighted you somehow or someone would say to me, well, what if you found out your daughter had been raped or something? Well, that's such a hypothetical. I can't go there. But just in the normal action of what it would take in my mind to work myself up to that, then premeditate it, not pick up the knife and stab. Well, listen, if we believe that this is the first hatchet axe murder ever and the only hatchet axe murder ever where there's an hour and a half in between the two murders. When you kill somebody with a hatchet or an axe, it's a spree killing. You kill everybody that you're going to kill all at once because you're not going to get that worked up again. You don't calm down and get worked up again. This is the only case like this. So does that mean there's two killers? Does that mean it's not an emotional killing? That it is a uh, a hit right. of some kind where it's made to look like it's something else? It's never happened before. It's unique in all the world of hatchet and axe murders. So, and I have a friend who studies those, and he confirmed this. He's told me this story, and I was like, I believe you, I believe you. Um, Think about it. It's unreal to imagine that you could get so angry that you'd pick up a hatchet and actually physically kill someone with it, and then... La, 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 la. Oh, it's an hour and a half later, daddy's home. You know? Well, what? And, and the other... You have to be, like, who does that? And the other thing about it, again, now going into into the um, was there something wrong in her head syndrome in that the aftermath, if it's not her, that she was she was calm. I mean, this is reports that we don't have video. Well, this is of the period of time. No, she was was not going to present her emotions to the outside world. Okay. This is again, that social. Okay. She was uh, proper in that regard. So her manner of emotional or lack of emotional reaction to what was going on around her is a societal choice in the Victorian America. So the police look at her and the first thing Alan says is, oh, she's got to be guilty. She's not crying, right? That's a man judging a woman's non-hysterical reaction as evidence of guilt. Her reaction is evidence of guilt. Dr. Bowen comes in and says, oh, I don't want you to get hysterical, so I'm going to give you some morphine and some bright, uh, bromo whatever, caffeine, and we're going to calm you down. So you have, on one hand, a man saying you can't get hysterical, and on the other hand, you've got a man saying you're not hysterical enough. Women could not win in this situation. So she's damned if she does and damned if she doesn't. She reacts. It's out of place for her social position to show her emotion. She didn't show her emotion during the trial. And she was on the trial of her life. So she did. She wasn't the kind of person that let people in, in public. So that was who she was. So then you've got somebody drugging her up, so she can't. And yet that's an evidence of guilt, according to Officer Allen, because he's like, hey, she's not upset. She's not hysterical. I know my wife would be hysterical. My wife would run around. Ah! Yeah, but this is Lizzie Borden, and that's just not who she was. Evidence shows that's not who she was. That's not me saying putting something on her that isn't real. We see her at the trial, and we know that she's she can hold it back. So she's she's a she's guilty because men think she's guilty in some ways, and maybe she is guilty. Maybe she is. 
All right, let's go through a couple of the, um, as I say, I'm going to fly around here. Let's, a couple of the questions I have uh, that, again, you get different <clears throat> different stories or, or interpretations of things that, that came out from the trial. The hatchets. Hatchets or hatchets or a couple, you know, they, they were in the basement and then they come up. Um, did the one hatchet do both? Uh, they never find the murder weapon. So you're convinced as Oh, no, but they never they... present the handleless hatchet as the murder weapon. It's just the size of the head Had... of the hatchet would fit the wounds. Got it. So it would have been a hatchet that size. So they never, they no. never in their minds, never found the— uh, They the... never found the murder weapon. No. Okay. They knew that because there was no blood or hair of human or anything on any of the things that they found. And a handleless hatchet can't kill somebody. So— um, so the whole, I mean, again, it's so written about, like you said, because someone grasps on something and, oh, she she got the hatchet and then cleaned it, but there was still blood on it. So then she broke off the handle. Like, when did she have then, time to do any of that? And, right. And then why didn't she, you know, burn that? I always say, why didn't she just go out in the backyard and bury the hatchet? <laughs> but um, so so you're convinced then also. Um, well, they never claim they found the murder weapon. Right. Okay. They never claim they, they found they the present this, They presented different things. But then in the middle of the trial, they find a hatchet on right. the crow barn, right. which is catty corner in the back. Yep. And it's the right size. Right. And, but it's been there for a while. And it disappears from the story. It's not really looked at. The police aren't interested, you know, so it's not investigated. But they actually find a hatchet on the roof of the house in the backyard. Some some boy finds it yeah. or something and, yeah. and bring it was during the trial. I it was mean, during it wasn't the trial. It was like once right. the trial started, yeah. they, he found it or whatever. That made all the news, but right. the police said, we're not interested. Um, and and I'm guessing, though, that most of the things that I did read about the, the uh, holes in the skulls, that they consistently could be the same hatchet. So yes. we're not, probably yes. not talking about, like you said, multiple somebody killing one, and then if they did kill the other one, if it was a hit, uh, they used the same, probably yeah. used the same. Uh, the, 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 the argument comes into, can someone kill someone with this hatchet in these two cases and not get blood on them? Right. Which is, you can look at it two ways. You can look at experts that will say, yes, they could have a minimal amount of blood on them and not enough to notice based on the positioning of the bodies and where the blows were held. But you also will have people who say, no, she would have been whoever spattered with blood and at least had blood while they're killing Abby on the bottom part of her dress and if uh, Andrew on the top part. So there's no evidence. It's almost it depends. Like at that moment, what happened is what determined how much blood was on them. It had to do with whether his artery was severed first or second, or whether there was spurt or whether there wasn't. And so that's that blood spatter analysis I'm talking about. It doesn't appear that there was an artery severed first, that he died before, which meant that the blood didn't spurt. But would somebody know that when they hit them and know not to hit them there so that they wouldn't get spattered with blood? And if she was the killer and had been spattered with blood, what then? Would she wait till 1130 to call Bridget down? I mean, so um, she apparently didn't change her clothes. She apparently was not washed and wet and had been cleaned somehow. So I don't know. <laughs> so so the, uh, the infamous burning of the dress was innocent. 
Oh no, you can you can look <laughs> no. at okay. Oh look, go. wait a go. minute. The go. one thing you're not supposed to do is if you're accused of murdering somebody is burn a dress two days later. You just really shouldn't do that. That's my advice to future murderers out there. Don't do something as stupid as burning a paint stained dress on the Sunday after a Thursday murder. Just don't do it. Uh, that's very, very suspect. But everybody said, yep, the the dressmaker came in and said, yep, she had a paint-strained dress. And yep, I made that dress for her. And yep, right after that, she got paint on it. Yep. So there was evidence that it, she did have a paint-stained dress. The question is, was she wearing it that day? But as you say, whether she was or not, and there's, there's. Um, but people didn't remember what she wore. Right. Well, no, I know that. But there was debate also about whether Emma told her it was go ahead and do it. I mean, Emma's own testimony in the trial. She said she told her she the night I, before. You need to you burn do that it, thing. and yeah. then and then. But then other people, Alice or other people in the room, said she you, she said you shouldn't. That's not really something you should do. The police are still hanging around. So he had different stories. Uh, that changed. For well, Lizzie would never would have been indicted had it not been for Alice Russell in the paint stain dress. Because the grand jury... Pinch face. Pinch face the, she Alice was a horrible witness. She couldn't remember anything. She was nervous on the stand. But the grand jury met and didn't come down with an indictment. And then she goes to the police and says, remember, I told you that she did this paint stain dress thing on Sunday. And let me repeat to you what she did. They took her in and had that testimony presented before the grand jury, and an indictment was immediately handed down. So if it wasn't for Alice Russell, <laughs> that's why she's later called her turncoat friend, um, Lizzie would never have been indicted because there no, there's no evidence. There still isn't any evidence, and that's why she's acquitted in every retrial that they do throughout history because there's no evidence that she did it. But who else could? So there you go again. It's it's the the there's no one. I, I don't know if it was if it was uh, Mark Twain or someone said, or in a Sherlock Holmes book when everything other than what you thought first. That's or some, just Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Is it? And yeah. how does it? Do you know the quote? Uh, or they, a paraphrase quote? Then yeah. it has to be the well, first. Well, it's Occam's Razor. The simplest answer is the answer. All things being equal, right. you know. Um, but there's no evidence. So, I mean, if you're going to convict somebody of murder, you better have evidence. And they just didn't have any. And they still don't have any. So if she did it, she got away with it in that case. She was acquitted because there wasn't any evidence. If they had had evidence and they had convicted her, it would be different. But they didn't. It took the jury 10 minutes to figure this out. So they knew that there was nothing there. And... At the trial, there were so many things that were ruled out as being presented before the jury. So Benz's testimony. Let's talk about the poison. Where ben, do you stand on the poison? I don't. It, you don't. I know you don't know, but no. I mean, heard, I I do, don't. Do I don't know vote? if she was really the person who was That's there trying That's to buy right. the poison. Of course, Knowlton thought she was. Right. Knowlton even figured that when she was in New Bedford the week she was before that she was shopping well. around there as well. So he had an idea that she was shopping for poison, and he really wanted that poison testimony in there. But it was ruled inadmissible because it was a different way to kill somebody. <laughs> well, you're right. But <laughs> us as us as ex common people would say, and I know that's not got nothing to do with trials. Uh, that's what we think, but uh, we know, at least through history, that you know Lucretia Borgia, that that women don't usually certainly they may grab a knife or even a gun, or run their husbands over with a car, but they don't pick up axes. Not normally, but normally. they can. They can. There's been they can. In you know, France, there's, a few, there's been you know, quite a few. 
<laughs> but so that's why poison make. In other words, why poison? Okay, that. Yeah, but prussic acid is such a weird poison when she could just use rough on rats, which is readily available without a prescription. I mean, arsenic is everywhere. It's in it's in over the counter medicine. She didn't have to go for something odd that's volatile as prussic acid. Um, it's not. It's a weird thing to even imagine. So Benz's testimony is disallowed. That was strike one. Strike two, they couldn't get her inquest testimony in at the trial. That was the end of the prosecution's case. When they could not have her be her own words used against her, but they had mistreated her legally at the inquest. Her Jennings asked to be present as her lawyer during the inquest. Blaisdell said, no. No. He said, but she suspected no. And when you're suspected and there's a warrant out for your arrest but not served, you're allowed to have legal counsel at your side when you're interviewed by the police. And they didn't let her have representation with her. And she was on medication that we think, the morphine that the doctor had given her. So she went through three days or something of inquest testimony, and her answers were here, there, and back again. But sometimes she remembered some things and sometimes she didn't. So she had a scattered memory, which made her look guilty. But when her inquest testimony was disallowed because she was not properly cautioned or allowed a lawyer present during that questioning, that it was inadmissible, the case was over. And everybody knew it because it was, she wasn't going to talk on, on the trial. She wasn't going to get up on the stand. There was nothing to incriminate her in this murder. Hmm. So they had no case. They built it on those two pillars, fence and inquest, and they didn't get either one. And and so you're also you're feeling one of the the aside from who else could have done it, um, and the one of the big pushes either the hatred and again there isn't a lot of example of. Uh, Outside of what, you know, tattling down the road of that she was, you know, hated Abby. Mm-hmm. And, you know, don't call her my well, mother. Well, she said so to a lot of people that yeah, she don't was call a her mean my old thing. It's a fat old thing, yeah. a mean old thing. Oh, well, she didn't know. used to feel that way. Yeah. She called her mother up In until the, the, the sale of the house, the, the, the Fourth Street property issue. So there was a money issue that came between them emotionally. So is she, even though, again, uh, she had the grand tour of Europe and her father paid uh, for that, yeah, 19 <clears throat> weeks, that just following the, and the, I know the prosecution looked for a will and they could not find a will. No, there was no, no will. No will was ever found. Whether there was one or not is, is moot because they couldn't find one. Moore said there wasn't one. Uh, uh, Charles Carpenter, uh, his business manager, said there wasn't one. He was thinking about it, but he hadn't done it yet because the day before he, or Previous to that, Carpenter was working on a will for somebody, and Andrew came in and started talking to him, and Carpenter said, hey, do you have a will? Like, I do wills, and Andrew said, no, I don't have a will. So there's a lot of evidence that said he didn't have a will. He was 70 years old. Right. So if he went before Abby, she gets everything the kids no, get. No, not everything. No, no, no. no. There's a, there's a, what no. was the law it's at that third, time? It's a third, a third, a third. It is a third. Yeah. It was by intestate, they would, they would a third, yeah. a third, a third. But they get it all if... They take her out. They still gave Abby all her stuff. They gave her her money. They gave her inheritance, her property, her valuables, her to her money her family. to her family. I mean, they gave her family what was Abby's. Absolutely. 
That wasn't enough for Hiram Harrington. He had nothing nice to say about Lizzie ever, from before the murders to after the murders. And it all had to do with Andrew's handling of his father's estate because his half-sister was married to Hiram Harrington, Lorana, and uh, he felt that she was short-shrifted, but she wasn't. He was just doing business. He's like, you have to pay for this, and you have to pay for this, and, you know, this is your share of the taxes, and blah, blah, blah. And Hiram said, well, you're richer than we are. You should pay for that, you know? So people are funny about money. Well, if if we go where we're going here, then, you know, it's, it's not really uh, this... Elizabeth Montgomery naked oh, killing yeah. of of thing is that like, was brought up. At, that was a theory that was brought up at the trial. By was Rob, it really? Yes. Oh, I see. I that came. All of these theories that people have are really are not necessarily are, are out of not whole new. cloth. No, they're no. not new. So what? Where? Where did I miss that? And <laughs> it's in the it, trial. In the uh, it is. Yeah, it's in the oh, summation. I think. Yeah. Um. So. Yeah, but that but if it wasn't for the Elizabeth Montgomery movie, she wouldn't have been reintroduced to us as a modern story. And I think that that 19 what 1974, I think it was 1975 TV movie really was so well done, even though that didn't look like Fall River at all and it certainly wasn't Second Street. But Elizabeth Montgomery captured perfectly this character for us and we all remember that movie. And when we saw it for the first time, wherever we were, how whatever age we are when we first saw it, because it was just so perfect. And it's now it, where, where do you come down on Christina Ritchie? Oh, I think that's hilarious. I just I to me, I think that stuff is funny as heck. I think it's full of in jokes and humor and turning her into a serial killer is a hoot. And I have no problem with it because it's stupid ridiculous it's kind of like american horror story it's grand guignol it's over the top it's not meant to be believed and i really liked it so now did you see the which i have not seen the the lizzie the, no see the now, whole lesbian it, thing i'm really i is that what i was supposed to be bridget and 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 her together well, no and this latest one bridget is abused by andrew oh okay and lizzie comforts her and protects her and ends up, I think, falling in love with her and then protecting her from Andrew. And that's why this whole thing happens. What a crock. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, we ha what we have to remember— Just because a woman didn't get married, what, that does not mean what, she was a lesbian. What we have to remember is that—and that's why it's fine to you know talk about things and, and things, even things like a movie generates discussion. They're not A&E documentaries. No. None of them. No, as long as they're consistent dr dramatically, right. I'm all for it. Right. I've seen a lot of theater, Lizzie Theater, and the stuff that is dr is uh, dramatically Correct. makes sense, right. whether it they has then... its facts right or not. Right. But if it's emotionally, dramatically uh, concise and, and, and actually tells this story in a very logical, interesting way, in a new way, I'm all for it, whether I believe what they're saying or not. I just think that things have to be true to themselves. Uh, there was I, I love quotes by you know this a quote from another author, um, his name is oh here we go Edmund Pearson, mm -hmm. and he says the Borden case is without parallel in the criminal uh, history of America. It is the most interesting, perhaps the most puzzling murders which has occurred in this country. 
And Alexander Wolcott once said, of all the people in all the world, I'd love to sit down and talk to Lizzie Borden. And then I say, who do you want to have dinner with? It's like, <laughs> hmm. Then later I found this one even even more extraordinary. And, and again, it's a question I'd like to ask you. Uh, you're you sort of studying it from outside, but the people who maybe are a little bit too interested in it, um, he, <laughs> he, he says – the extraordinary fascination of this case is a, as a problem in human character and human relations. So in other words, I think he's saying that this fascination that's driven people to, you know, buy all the books, go see all the movies is not real healthy. Oh, I disagree. You do. Oh, yes. I think go it's on. an intellectual it's an intellectual game and it's um you're not hurting anybody by having a theory and testing your logic to some extreme level. Because, you know, I've done that. I've spent years going down rabbit holes saying, oh, it's it's got to be this guy. And I go all the way to the end, and there's just not enough for me to prove it. And then I go, well, maybe it's this guy. And I go down this road. And I can't prove anybody. But nobody can prove anybody. So we're all in the same boat. So it becomes uh, an exercise in logical deduction. Well, if then that, or what if. And parquet uh, stories are very uh, part of our culture. What if? You know, what if? Um, I find it a great story, and I like fixing the facts to people's faces. Like, they say something, and I went, nope, that's not true. And they'll look at me like I just slapped them. And I'll be like, no, that's not true. And I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that. But then you've got people who come at it from all different directions. You've got the psychic side of it. You've got the graphologist who says, I've analyzed her handwriting and it proves she's guilty. Or, you know, I've had a seance in the Borden home and Andrew used to perform uh, abortions on Lizzie. And that. I'm like, sure you did. All right. Who's the crazy one here? Now, okay. you mentioned it. Have you been – I assume you've been to the house? Oh, many times. Yeah. I've spent Have you stayed over – yeah? Yeah, yeah. Anything no. didn't raise the hair on the Look, back? Look, I'm right not now? one – I'm not – I don't have that thing. Right. I, 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 I'm not saying you don't if you think you do. Right. Uh, I, but I don't see things, hear things, or feel things. So that's just not me. Maybe it's because I – I don't know. There's not. It's not. I don't have a sixth sense. I have feelings about things, like premonitions, kind of things. Like, mm -hmm. but that's just your gut telling you not right. to do something because it's not a good idea. Yep. That's all that is. That's just your own mind saying. Eh. Um, but this whole thing about psychics and ghosts and the latest thing that's got me. Oh my gosh, it's got me so wrapped up in a knot. Is this new thing that Lizzie's haunting Maplecroft, and it's the good Lizzie, and her name is Lizbeth. And this TV show went there, Kindred Spirits or something. I don't know. And they threw out all the stuff related to the crime, and the psychic had this big long conversation with Lizbeth, and I'm like. Yeah, sure, right, okay? And I'm like, how can that be when you have her haunting Second Street also, and it's the evil Lizzie who did the murder, but then you've also got her at Maplecroft, and she's like later, and she's nice, and she doesn't want to talk about the murder, but she wants to talk about what? It's like, how can she be two different ghosts in two different houses? And you know what they told me? Anything's possible in the spirit world. And I'm like... 
like that is not the answer that is going to get you a free pass on all the baloney you're putting out about the spirit world. Let's talk about the chicanery involved in all of that, the fraud involved in all of that. To get people to believe all of that stuff is unfathomable to me and dangerous. So now they have two haunted houses. So congratulations. It's a business model. Well, it, it is. It's and a business it, model. And it is. And I have, right. When they turned the Mark Twain house into a haunted house, I know, called them up. I said, what the heck? What's the deal? She goes, we need to stay open. And I said, but you're not haunted. And she goes, but we need to stay open. And I was like, that's just not right. It's not right. Look, there was a spiritualist movement during the Victorian era where people sat and did seances and did table tipping and had the cone in the middle, you know, the whole Houdini thing. This was a movement of people who believed in this stuff. But Houdini went around the country and proved all of it was false. If you're going to pretend it's true or to show it as like, this is what they did back then, like this is how the spiritualists would have approached it from that era, I have no problem with that. And then it's a show. Right. But they're calling it real. And people are buying into it. Yeah. You know, well, and it's a sucker's born every minute, yeah, well, I guess. there you go. Because it's too extreme for me. It's right. one thing to say I talked to my father in my head or I've seen him in my room or somebody died and there they were. That's different than actually having a conversation with a ghost. As these guys on um, BuzzFeed, they went to visit the house and – and those one that believes is always afraid of ghosts, and the other one is like doesn't believe in it. And the one who doesn't believe in it says, "How come it's only famous people that get ghosts? Like, how come the guy who chokes on a peanut doesn't get a ghost? Like, what is this? Why is it just famous people?" So there's that. Well, I, it's funny because I I had a uh, meeting with uh, uh, Dennis and Michael from the Historical Society, uh, Fall River Historical Society, which I'm going to be talking to them soon. And uh, Michael brought up a good point. He said, you know, he's been in the house. He knows people in the house, uh, the Second Street house, you know, years ago. And gee, there were no ghosts then. Nope. <laughs> there were no ghosts. Nope. And now all of a sudden, with the fancy furniture and, and the the, uh, you know, the oil lamps, now there are ghosts. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's okay. <laughs> I just – I don't want to talk about it as it terms the case. But when people try to solve it from that right. from that point of view, I'm like, time out. You don't have a leg to stand on. You're not talking to the ghost and the ghost isn't telling you what happened. You have to look at the facts. You have to look at the evidence. You have to look at the transcripts. You have to look at the primary sources. Detectives don't solve crimes that way and neither should people, you know. But if you want to have an impression based on your feelings – Fine. That's fine. But don't tell me Andrew told you or Lizzie told you because they didn't. Well, and the, the other thing that I would, you know, to reckon, I'm, I'm not being paid by the Lizzie Borden bed and breakfast, but I took two tours. I have not stayed overnight, but I found one of the things that is very helpful if anyone who is interested. Oh, it's a great, great It's a great ref, uh, uh, resource because oh, I, I'm sorry, these maps of the showing that the uh, you, know, you the, don't know the case until you go to the house. You can't figure you out can't these connecting rooms because all these books were written before anything written before 1996. No, none of those people got into got the house. Got into the house. So they're making up what it was like inside <laughs> the house. They're 
they're they're fictionalizing the interiors and the closeness and the uh, claustrophobia yep. that they describe. You have to go to the house. Yep. The tours are fantastic. Yep. They are well worth visiting. Spending the night is great experience. Um, you are you can opt in or opt out of the ghost part of it. You don't have to participate in that if you don't want to. It is uh, one of the few murder houses that is still a lot around. Most times they tear those things down. It's not a moneymaker for other murder situations. I mean, all those, you know, Gacy's house is gone and mm -hmm. OJ's house is gone. Right. And, you know, all those places are gone. Um, the uh, Manson Cielo Drive house is gone. The This house is still there. And even though it's a completely different looking neighborhood than it was, the house is still there. So the biggest piece of evidence is still there. That's the house where the murders happen. So it opens up your mind to possibilities when you walk in there. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, look how hard it is to climb these really steep stairs. And, oh, look how far away that toilet is downstairs in the cellar. And you have to pass through this room to see that room. And this is really interesting. So you get a completely different idea of, and your own idea of what's going on when you visit the house, and I highly recommend it. I, I do, do as, as I will also give a plug for the uh, Historical Society, because they have a beautiful house uh, where the museum is. The and largest collection of Lizzie and Borden And they have the Lizzie Borden stuff, which I'm sure makes Ma Michael roll his eyes. No, uh-uh. No, he's, he's, he's okay with that. No, he has, yeah, you because know, it, I mean, it's, it's a... It's a profitable part of the society. Of the society, which does other good work and has other yeah. good um, uh, things, art there, and, and, and just the building itself is beautiful, uh, and certainly a wealth of information about Fall River. I mean, one of the points you mentioned, Parallel Lives, which I'll mention again, is a book by Michael Martins and Dennis Bennett. Bennett. And uh, it's a huge, it's the size of a, of a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary, but only mm -hmm. like 62 pages or 58 pages or something is, is dedicated only to the Lizzie Borden. No, to the crime. The story the is crime. about her. The crime. It's her I'm life. sorry, the crime. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, obviously that's where Parallel Lives comes. It's the, title the story comes. of Fall River as it as told through sort of her history from 1860 to 18 um, to 1928. She died in 1927, but they include the fire of Fall and, River. And just the things that are in there as far as a, and it's, it's archetypal. It's diaries of, and letters and uh, scrapbooks and factual information and family lore and, and genealogy. And it's full of a telling of the, the history of the city through the story of Lizzie Borden. It's really right, great and book. and that city was archetypal of the cities that were springing up at that time, uh, uh, beginning with manufacturing. And we of course have uh, you know Pawtucket, uh, Rhode Island, which uh, cotton mills and or you know uh, one of the first mills. And so these mm -hmm. uh, the Slater Mill, yep, the Slater Mill. So these these uh, a book like that is again it'll maybe hook you. I oh, just I just worked on a book uh, with an author named William Spencer, and um, he wrote a book that I produced for him called "The Case Against Lizzie Warden," and we just finished this, and it's out now and for sale on Amazon. But it is uh, an eight hundred and fifty page book that is a telling of the story like it has never been told before because it's just fact after fact after fact. So he covers a chronological 
analysis of the case. So the first day of the inquest, the day of the the day before the crime, the day of the crime, where everybody was, where everybody said they were, and then it goes into the inquest day one, day two, day three, blah blah, preliminary day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, trial one all the way through, and then the outcome and conclusion. And he doesn't tell you what he thinks until the very end, and so it's non-biased. It is a unbiased accounting of the legal case about this murder. And so you are free to draw your own conclusions. He doesn't steer you in any one direction. And it's fascinating. It is a unique telling of the story and it's getting a lot of good reviews. So I'm so, very proud of it. So, which you you well should be. What are just people out there? It would be nice for them to say, "Hey, you know, uh, I read that book, so I'm important." Uh, what are some <laughs> of the other no some of the other books that that you've read? I mean, you've probably read I've a lot. And you read go, them all, "Oh, yeah. that the, you know that one belongs in the in the trash, but that one I like." The worst so is Spearing. What's it called? The worst is Spearing's book. Okay. Um, he, uh, I think it's called Lizzie. He. Um, makes things up. He was a, a a kind of a think of him as a Barnum kind of guy. He was he liked to uh, grandiose self-importance kind of guy. He um, he made up things. There's a lot of fanci fanciful statements in his book that are not true. So um, he's the worst of the bunch. Um, Victoria Lincoln, who lived in Fall River, who whose family <laughs> knew the Borden family, not that she knew Lizzie, oddly comes to some kind of theory that she had some grand mal seizures and that she was killed her during these seizures, which I've never seen a, another case of anybody having an epileptic fit and actually committing violence. So it's an odd idea. Um, there's other theories that are around um, that go far and fair between. Um, when I first read Arnold Brown's book, The Legend, The Truth, The Final Chapter, about the illegitimate son, Billy Borden, I'm like, oh, wow, this is it. This explains it all. This is great. And it was a really good story, you know, and there was not a single footnote. And where did he get this from? And then I found out he stole the whole idea from a guy who was related to Ellen Egan, Pete Peterson and stole his whole treatise and wrote this book and it was a bestseller and it was really good but then you sit back and you go nah because there wasn't anything to it there's no facts behind it but it's a great story I mean the illegitimate son why not I mean let's introduce a whole new character into the story but it was really well done so I allow books to take me places and I don't judge them when I first start reading them and I'm like oh, no you know Nice try, but no. So anything we want to say as we're wrapping up here? This has been a great, I can't believe it's been an hour. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and we've uh, certainly covered, there's going to be more I'm sure more stuff I'm going to think about, and uh, we may do another one sometime. But um, I do, I agree with you is the more I'm, I'm talking to other people, not just my own, you know, reading and, and my own research, is um, that this is a multi-layered story. Yes. It's multi it's textured. It's not simple in any way. Even with the even if she was found guilty, I don't think it, that wouldn't have ended it because the evidence would have still been unless she then stood up and screamed, "You caught me!" Well, the first book about the case was written by Todd Lunday, who was a pseudonym for a, a minister in Rhode Island named Harp, who 
little pamphlet. It's free to download on my on my website if you want to read it. It's a very thin volume, and it was the first book that came out in 1893. And in it, he opines logically that if Lizzie didn't do it, nobody did it. So nobody did it because she was acquitted. So no one killed the Bordens is what he comes up with. But it's perfectly logically explained. So you go, oh, okay, nobody killed them. Um, That's just as good an answer. I'm trying to think. I, I, I think we've covered everything. The The only thing that I, that I did – you say things that people didn't know. I can uh, just to close out here with the skulls, yeah. the decapitation and the and the of the heads and and not buried with the bodies and all that. Now that of course is fact because the skulls appeared at the the skulls were presented at trial, trial, right? And then after the trial, all of the evidence that was presented at trial was given back to Lizzie. The police were apparently not going to pursue it any further. The prosecution was never going to charge anybody else. They thought they had found their culprit. So they gave all this to Jennings, her lawyer, and he said to her, you know, what do you want me to do with all this stuff? And she said, I don't care, which is the right answer because the skulls were then reinterred in Oak Grove Cemetery. Um, they weren't put in the caskets. They were put in boxes above the the bodies in the caskets. So they're in the ground. Um, but all of that material was then, Jennings put it in a hip bath in his, his, his attic, and that was then donated lock, stock, and barrel to the Historical Society. So that's why they have all the trial exhibits, um, because of that. Things that aren't, they have the bedspread, they have pillow shams, they have letters, they have uh, slides with hair and blood and stomach samples and and little envelopes and photographs and the um, the the uh, ground plans that were done by Kiernan. They have the handleless hatchet. They have her dinner pail and her stool that was in her jail. They have and a lot of things that belong to Lizzie. So that's the place to go to see the story of the facts of the case and the trial and her but, life but after. But there, there's not a legal pad where, <clears throat> excuse me, he's got written, uh, Lizzie told me she did it. No, there's no legal pad. Although there is the Jennings Journal, which I keep pushing them to publish it, they have the 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 notebooks of the, her lawyer. And they're annotating it now and getting it ready for publication. But um, they assure me there's no smoking guns. Or tripping hatchets. <laughs> or bloody hatchets. On, on that note, we're going to end it there. I'd like to thank Stephanie Corey. Her website again is? LizzieAndrewBorden.com. Go visit it. And there's a forum as well. There is a forum. I have joined the discuss. forum. Yes. Um, and uh, very fascinating stuff on there. You join the forum and, and chit-chat about various uh, you know people from around the country probably. Yeah, correct? Around the world. Around the world. Yeah. That's great. Well, again, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.